I have um, chosen today the, the text that is on the front of your order of service for this message. I'd like for you just to quote this verse with me. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. William Carey was the brains behind the first, the modern missionary movement. Many of you know that, but some of you may not know that he was the first Baptist missionary to India. And William Carey once preached a sermon from this text that has become a classic entitled, Expect Great Things from God and attempt great things for God. Before leaving as a missionary to India, William Carey made this statement. He said, I'm going to India as a missionary, but the purpose of my going is to save England. For that great man of God knew that the life and health of any nation or church is dependent upon its ability to carry out the commission of God to take the gospel to the whole world. For we have been called, we have been chosen, we have been commissioned to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into every world sphere. The question this morning is not are we commissioned to take Christ to every man. The question is, how well are we doing that? Do we really have a deep sense of mission? And are we really, do we really have a deep compassion for all men? Edith Jacobson in her little book, Saints and Snobs, makes a stirring observation. She writes, If any group who claims to believe and practice everything written in this book would suddenly face up to its responsibility to one another and to the needs of the people around them, they would begin to impress their community with the shining goodness of God. I must ask you this morning, why are we not impressing our world with the shining goodness of God? Jacob was, Jacobson was saying, I think, that this world out there is starving, is dying for love and acceptance, and they're looking to the church and are not finding it. And far too often as they look to the church, they're just finding a bunch of snobs. I'm asking you the question that I must ask myself. Are we really impressing our world with the goodness of God? And are we really taking Christ into our various world spheres? How well are we doing that? In my quiet time recently, I was reading the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. Up here were 
the disciples, chosen disciples, and Jesus in transfigured glory, the glory of God no longer contained in the veil of human flesh. And down here was a lunatic boy in a seizure and a frantic father and a waiting, watching multitude and impotent disciples who couldn't help. As a matter of fact, this father said to Jesus later, I asked your disciples to help, but they couldn't. And as I read that, it just kind of stood out to me, struck me this way. The waiting world is not so much impressed. They don't know too much about the glory of God, but they know a lot about the weakness of his disciples. They're not too conscious of what Jesus can do, but they are conscious of what the disciples of Christ cannot do. And there's some striking parallels to that in our day. I'm afraid that this community of ours is not so much convinced of the glory of God as it is convinced of the snobbery and indifference and weakness of his people. Are we really taking the gospel of Jesus Christ into our various world spheres? Now why are we not? Why are we not impressing the community with the goodness of God? Maybe it's because Maybe it's like the young Baylor student said quite candidly, we no longer believe that the people outside of Jesus Christ are going to hell. Or maybe it's because we've lived on past glory too long. And it's true that God has glorified himself here in years past. The walls of this church sanctuary are hallowed with the praises and prayers of past generations. Here little children have wanted to come and young people have made their covenant with Christ and the strong have renewed their strength and the sorrowful have found comfort and here has been realized the presence of a reality that transcends this world. But I am here to tell you we cannot live on past glory and achievement and fading memories. It's time for you and for me to recapture the conviction that our reason for existence is rooted and grounded in the mandate of Jesus Christ to take him to all men. We have no reason to exist apart from that. And we're not doing that very well. Let's be honest. Did you know after the marketplace analysis we have found that 66% of the people in Durant, Oklahoma are not enrolled in Bible study. That's a number that approaches 10,000. And of that 66%, 40% of them said they would like to be. Did you know that one-third of the households in this town 
have children not enrolled in Bible study and 73% of them said they would like for their children to be. Did you know that a third of the people of Durant, Oklahoma are not members of a local church and 87% of them said they wanted to be? Now with that kind of openness and response, you can't tell me and make me believe it that we're doing effectively what God has called us to do. We must do two things. One, we must begin to expect great things from God. Alexander Pope has a what he calls the ninth beatitude. The ninth beatitude is this. Blessed is the man who expects nothing, for he will never be disappointed. Now that may be the ninth beatitude, but what that is is thinly veiled despair, my friend. For expectation is the blood relative of hope. And when a man's hope expires, he's as good as dead. But I'm afraid, if we're honest, that Alexander Pope's ninth beatitude is the unspoken premise of much of our praying. There's no real tiptoe expectancy. There's no real breathless anticipation. There's no real ardent optimism. Oh, we find it comforting when we read how God delivered the children of Israel out of bondage and walked them across the Red Sea on dry land. And we exult when we read how he delivered Daniel from the, from the lion's den and the Hebrew children from the fiery furnace. And we find it, in, find it inspiring when we hear the words of Paul when he said, from an unembittered spirit, I've learned to be content in all circumstances, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But we don't really believe and expect God to do that kind of work in our lives, do we? In the paraphrased words of James, we have not because we expect not. What do you expect from God? Are you like the lady who had the hunt and peck system of Bible study and one night she was hunting and pecking and she found this verse. If you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, be thou removed and it will be carried into the depths of the sea. And she had a mountain outside her house that was obstructing her view, and so she prayed that night to the mountain, Be thou removed, and the next morning it was still there, and she said, Huh, I knew it wouldn't work in the first place. What do you expect from God? Listen to me. 
I'm not asking what, are you, what have you been taught to expect from God. I'm not asking you what do you think you're supposed to expect from God. I'm asking you what do you expect from God. For I want you to know God meets us at the level of our expectations. And the miracles of His resources are available to faith. And the people and the churches who are living in the faith dimension are seeing the miracles of God. Let's suppose that today you had flight 231 from Dallas to Houston and you got on that 727 in DFW and the first thing you would do would be to go into the cockpit and you'd say, how are you going to get this big thing off the ground? This thing won't fly. Let me look at the instruments to see if they're working properly. Are you instrument-related, you would ask the pilot? I want you to explain to me how you're going to get it up and how you're going to get it down. No, you wouldn't do that, for the passengers are not permitted in the cockpit. The ship, the flying of the ship, is left up to the captain. I want you to believe this morning as a member of this church, we're not allowed in the control room for God's response is not to explanation, it's to expectation. But I'm here to promise you that if this church begins to live in the faith dimension, God's going to do things with us we've never imagined could be. Call unto me, and I will answer thee. And I'll show you in the aisles of First Baptist Church, and I'll show you in the buildings of First Baptist Church, and I'll show you in the family of its membership something you've never dreamed before. What do you expect from God? I mean, when you come to worship. Sometime I walk out in the halls and I, I'm, I, I check my calendar. I think, well, m maybe we're going to a funeral today. One morning my phone rang when I was pastoring West Texas, and I answered. It was Sunday morning. I was getting ready for church. And the lady said, all excitedly, I just want you to know, Pastor, today's going to be a big, great day. She said, I've been in prayer and I'm so excited. I just sense that this is the day that God is going to bless our church. And when I got at church that morning, you know it was one of those mornings and we've talked about it some, you could just cut the spirit with a knife. It was dynamic and exciting and electrifying. And we went into the service, nothing unusual, same old sermon, but God visited us in power. What do you expect from God? For the resources of God are open to those of you who live in the faith dimension. Now, attempting great things from God is the second step. But our expectation of God 
has to be the undergirding for our attempts of great things for God. Now, if you hear anything that you think might be true, you might just breathe a silent amen. I can see your lips move, and that'll encourage me. I know you're not going to say it out loud. I've already learned that. In the classic, all's quiet on the western front, a young soldier was lying in the trench, and his rifle was resting on the parapet. And there was an eerie silence. The war had stopped for a few moments. And he was enjoying the, the respite in the battle. In the eerie silence of the gun, he was lying there. His his Fatigues were caked with mud and blood, and on his face was a faraway, wistful longing. And as he rested in the sunlight, he saw this butterfly begin to float down, and it just lighted right out in front of his rifle. That uninvited guest resurrected memories of his childhood when he was a boy running through the hills of sunny Saxony, knee-deep in buttercups and daisies. That guest resurrected memories of the lovelier things of life. And for a moment or two, he forgot about the war. He forgot about the dangers and the death and the despair. For just a moment, he was that boy again, running through the fields, and he wanted that butterfly so bad he couldn't stand it. And so he began to climb out, forgetting the war. He began to crawl out of the trench. Slowly he was crawling toward that butterfly like he used to do as a child. And just as he had it in, its gra in his grasp, the staccato crack of rifles interrupted the silence and his body stiffened and his hands opened up and slowly he slipped back into the trench. For him, the war was over. There is always a risk when you reach for the lovelier things. Now be honest with me. Most of us are afraid of the risk of reach. We suffer from a kind of spiritual acrophobia, reaching too high. We're afraid of that. Now be honest with me. Most of us here today are afraid of the possibilities of what would happen if this church suddenly begin to seek with passion the fullness of God. That's dangerous. That's disturbing. That's a risk. I know, a, I know two churches in the same city. One of them is staid and conservative and frightened. They're suspicious of everything new any kind of change, suspicious. What's he going to do with us next? 
the other church is reaching for the lovelier things. They may try 10 new programs. They even may have a marketplace analysis. They may try 10 new programs. Seven of them just fall flat. Three of them will catch on and will stick. And the farmer church is just barely hanging on by the fingernails and the folks are fussing at each other all the time. They don't like one another and they can't meet their budgets. And the latter church is just a beehive of activity and growth. You can't crowd the people in there on Sunday morning and they just subscribe the largest budget in the history of their church. Stevenson was speaking the gospel when he said, Acts can be forgiven, but God himself cannot forgive a hanger back. And so we're afraid of the risk of breach. We attempt, if our attempts are guaranteed to succeed, and we reach if our reach is devoid of risk. Now listen if you've not heard anything else. For I'm convinced that while we sit in our armchair, armchairs of seclusion and talk about why that won't work and this won't work and we shouldn't try that and this, this world is being won, my friend, by the people who are running the risk of reach. And there's a risk involved. Perhaps my fa favorite Old Testament character is Caleb. He holds a fascination for me. Not only was he Moses' right-hand man, but he was Joshua's. You remember when he was one of the spies, he and Joshua went in, and they were the minority spies, and they came back after looking out the land, and they said, Joshua said, let's step over the Jordan and let's possess our possessions. Caleb said, let's step over the Jordan and possess our possessions. But they were afraid of the risk of reach. And so they wandered in the wilderness for those years. And finally, as you know the story, Joshua and Caleb were the only two from that group that had the privilege of going into the promised land. And after they'd kind of subdued the promised land, Joshua came to Caleb, Joshua the leader, and he was going to give him his reward, give him the land. He, let, he was going to let him get first choice. Here was this old man, Caleb, his hair hoary white. Joshua said to him, you deserve your first pick. You deserve the first. And you'd think he'd choose the best land down there in the fertile plain, but he pointed to the mountains where there are still a few tribes that were warring against the incursion of the Israelis. And, and Caleb said, give me the mountains. And that's why he stayed young. For you see, age is not a matter of time. Age is a matter of mind. It's a matter of spirit. Give me the mountains. I'm going to expect God to do great things and I, with that expectation, am going to reach for the mountains. Oh, would you say it? Give me the mountains. 
And you say, well, these are hard times, Pastor. What in the world should we do as a church in reaching out? We're just panting now, tongues hanging out, trying to keep up. Somebody said that as we came in this morning, after being on this weekend. And then we agreed that whatever God asks us to do, that his promise that we can. And these are the days of soaring inflation and rising interest rates. These are the days of the threat of war and insecurity and uncertainty. But I want you to know that man's extremity is God's opportunity for those who live in the faith dimension. Give me the mountain. Listen that I'm free. Win Arn, A-R-N, has written several books on church growth and he's made several movies. One day while he was filming a movie called The Circus about church growth, and they had a scene in this movie about trapeze, about the trapeze and uh, the people who swing on them. What are they called? Trapeze artists. That makes sense. <laughs> I'm, of, I'm in command of that English language, aren't I? And, 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 and the trapeze artists were not there, and so the, 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 the actors in the film were daring Win Arn to get up on there and, and, and be one of the trapeze artists. They had a net. They said you couldn't hurt yourself. But you know you can't even fall into the net. But you know Win Arn took the dare. And he climbed up to the top of that circus tent to that little perch up there where the trapeze artist stands. And somebody across the way got the the uh, trapeze and was going to swing it out across there and when Arn was to jump and catch that trapeze. And so he said he got ready, trembling, frightened, fearful. And the guy said, are you ready? He said, let her go. And so he swung that trapeze out across there. And when Arn leaped and caught the trapeze, swung across the the circus tent to the other side and got down from there while he was still had his, all his bones intact. And he said, I sat down and I wrote this. Now he said, I wrote this statement. Now when I was swinging out across the circus tent, I wasn't necessarily thinking about church growth. <laughs> but he said, I do recognize some things about a growing church from that experience. Number one, in order to get from here to where you want to be, you've got to turn loose of what you've always had. Two, in order to get from here to where you want to be, you're going to have to fling yourself out upon the arms of faith. Number three, in order to get from here to where you want to be, you don't have all day to make the decision. Folks, I want a growing church 
attempting great things, claiming the mountains. I want that. I want to see this community impressed with the shining goodness of God. I want a revival of morality in America to begin in this place. So I'm willing to give up some of the things that I've always had. And I'm willing to leap out into the faith dimension. And I know that we don't have next week to decide it's time to do it. And the thing that frustrates me is this, that when you see all of this potential and you know how it can be done, you still got to have the folks <laughs> who are willing to do it. There's some of you sitting out there this morning who need to be teaching. You know you do. You're sitting in a class and you need to be teachers. I'm going to ask you this morning to make your decision to go with God. There's some of you here this morning who need to be active. You know what? 20% of what we're doing, we're doing with the same folks up here. You folks who come up there, I'm going to say it without embarrassment, without fear. You need to get with us. You folks down here, we need you. You folks here, we need you. We need people to staff you classes. We need people who will visit, gifted of God. We need people who are willing to pay the price and run the risk of reach. So I'm going to ask you to do this this morning. Are you willing to say, whatever God wants me to do, not what you want me to do, preacher, you don't count, that's right. Whatever God wants me to do, I'm willing to do it. What a dynamic moment this is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've not brought us to this place, to this church, to this point in our life for us just to be content to receive. For you've said that we're to be like you, and you said, I did not come to be ministered unto. I came to minister and to give myself. And Father, we can exult in the vision, the potential of a great church. But we know, Father, that it all boils down to the commitment of the people. And I pray, Father, that those of us who have been gifted with the gift of teaching will teach 
those of us who've been gifted with a gift of ministry will minister. Administration will administer. Serve will serve. Oh, I pray, Father, that this moment of invitation will be the moment response you want because I ask in Jesus' name, 